so yes, I'm very concerned about valuations over the next 10 years, based on where valuations that are right now, your returns are going to be close to zero. And look, you've already had two years of a zero rate of return, which means you've had two years. If you were expecting 6% growth each year, you have not done that. You spent a year losing money and a year getting it back. That's not making money. That's breaking even. And that's Welcome to Thoughtful Money. I'm its founder and your host, Adam Taggart, welcoming you here back at the end of yet another week for another weekly market recap featuring my good friend, Aquiline Portfolio Manager, Lance Roberts. How you doing, Lance? Man, you're really stretching this week. <laughs> you did? Well, look, I'm curious. Do you know what Aquiline means? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just say no. Yeah, pass. That's the smart thing to do. It means like an eagle. Right. We're familiar with hearing it like an aquiline nose. Right. And right. that really is sort of like a beak like nose, like a like like a, the eagle. But it's actually a general term of of or like an eagle. And since you guys at RAA strive to be the eagle flying above the bulls and the bears, I thought it was a particularly apt descriptor for you. Yeah. You know, so, yeah, you know, we, we you know, go along with Steve Miller. So <laughs> there you go. That should be like our lead in theme song for these things. Exactly. People are like, well, let's talk about Steve Miller. Who? I know you got to be old. If you're old if you know. It's so funny. They have all these videos out now. It says, "Can you do you recognize these songs?" And it's like these songs from the late '70s and early '80s. And if you recognize, you know, three of the ten songs, you're officially an old person. Like I know all ten of them. <laughs> yeah, but it's crazy. They have these this you know lists on the internet of like um, sounds that like you know millennials and Gen Z have never heard, like a busy signal. Right? right. Or the sound of a rotary phone or the sound of a typewriter or, you know, all these other things that us dinosaurs are like, wow, really? They never heard that. But yeah, exactly. Internet dial up. <laughs> Internet dial up. Yeah, I haven't even heard that. The AOL modem. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Um, all right. Well, look, lots to talk about. First off, glad to see that you're still alive after the cold yeah. snap hitting Texas. Yeah. So uh, it, it's really no big deal. It's so funny. I mean, everybody was just like freaking out. Uh, all the store shelves were completely barren. Um, and you know, you live in Texas, right? So how do you know you live in Texas? You, when you go to the store and all the sweet tea is sold out, but there's plenty of unsweet tea, you know, you're in Texas. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're willing to stock up on the essentials, but only, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. No, only no, the no. ones that taste good. Yeah. Um, you know, you go to the meat section, the meat section is completely empty, but go to the vegan section. Plenty of fake meat there. So <laughs> you know you're in Texas. But plenty of kale out. still left over. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, look, um, lots to talk about, um, including uh, the S&P knocking uh, on the door of all-time highs. Um, real quick, um, just want to let you give any update you want to give about your upcoming event, because that's coming up yeah. close now. Yeah, not just real close. I mean, it's like, it's like next weekend. So yeah. this coming Saturday, not, not today when you're watching this video, but this following Saturday, um, we're going to have our event with Greg Valliere talking about presidential election cycles. Adam will be there, myself, Michael Leibowitz talking about bonds. We're going to go through the markets, outlooks, you know, all this about how to invest in this year as we get ready to head into what is likely going to be a fairly contentious presidential election with all kinds of potential outcomes. Greg Valliere is a, is a really, really great speaker, and he's, he's politically agnostic. So he just talks about the facts, the data. Um, so it's it's not like a political commentary, but it's a, it's the impact of 
politics on the markets and how to invest for it. So it's going to be really great. It's uh, we we open the doors at seven thirty. Feed you breakfast. We're going to have um, you know several presentations going in the afternoon. Feed you lunch. And then Adam's going to narrate a panel for us where we'll take live Q&A from the audience. So if you have questions, I would love to see you there. Um, we're, we can't record this because of copyright issues. So it's a live event only. So um, there's a, the, we're actually having it in Hotel Sinesta in Houston. So you can book a room there, uh, spend the night and uh, come to the conference the next morning and then get back to the airport, which is really easy from that particular hotel. It's a straight shot back to Intercontinental Hotel, uh, Intercontinental Airport, sorry. Um, tickets are online now, though, so go to realinvestmentadvice.com. Click on the banner at the top of the page. I've got lots of emails from people going, where is the banner? It's the top of the page, realinvestmentadvice.com. Just click that link. It takes you right to Eventbrite, and you can buy your ticket. Great. And folks, um, I think I did this last time. I will have a link to the actual conference page um, down as the pinned comment uh, underneath this video. So if you want to get there quickly, just click on that link and yeah. go. Oh, no, um, no. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm always looking forward. I mean, I'm looking forward to the event. I, I always enjoy events like these, Lance. I mean, one for the idea exchange and to hang out with you and Mike and others there in person is going to be great. Can't wait to see the main keynote. Um, but I also really enjoy these just for, you know, the the mingling, like they'd be able to hang out and talk to, you know, people that are regular viewers who come up and, you know, have regular questions, feedback on what we should do with the show. Um, there are just always super interesting people. I always have great discussions. So looking forward yeah. to see you there in a week, buddy. Okay. Um, all right. Let's see here. Uh, let's start with the market action. Uh, the day that you and I are recording this, Lance, um, S&P looks like it's got a shot uh, to potentially hit okay. a new all-time high. Um, if it doesn't, it's probably going to hit it pretty soon. Um, so what are you seeing in this market action? Is this looking bullish to you? Is you getting concerned about valuations? I know you have a piece out where yeah. you're saying they're still at risk. So what do you think? Well, you know, that's it's you know right now you know, in the short term valuations don't matter. You know we we talk a lot about fundamentals and um, you know earnings and these type of things, but you know from day to day action it means nothing. Uh, very interesting chart out on Twitter this morning uh, talking about what is you know what do you think the biggest driver of the markets is, and by and large it's Fed policy, um, and then earnings are kind of come in second, and third is liquidity, which is Fed policy. So really, by and large, you know, it's not earnings, it's not valuations. We don't invest on fundamentals anymore. We invest on what the Fed is doing and whether or not they're expanding monetary policy or not. So that's what drive markets. And, and um, so just a couple of things here is, is let's not get too overly excited just yet. Yes, markets have rallied here for a couple of days, uh, which has been nice. And, you know, we are, you know, starting to push up. The NASDAQ did set a new all-time high earlier this week. And yes, the S&P will follow here at some point. But right now we're we're still within this consolidation range. We're just trying to break out above it um, on Friday, and we're, but we're right there. And, you know, the markets have got to make a convincing breakout to the upside. We're still on a sell signal as shown in the upper panel. Uh, we're hmm. still overbought as shown by the, the lower panel. We're still working through that overbought process. But none of that means that the market can't go ahead and, and, and push higher here and try to make an all-time high. So, and again, because the NASDAQ has done it and because the, the, the big drivers that are in the NASDAQ are also the big drivers of the S&P, that's your Magnificent Seven. Uh, considering those are what's driving the market once again this year so far, you know, we'll uh, probably see that new high sooner than later. 
And well, and, and it is what it is. I mean, you know, just because markets are on a sell signal and they, they currently are overbought doesn't mean markets can't gravitate higher short term. It does suggest, though, that upside is probably limited, which has really been the case this year. Ever since we've kind of triggered the sell signal, markets really haven't gone anywhere. We just kind of traded back and forth. We keep kind of we break, we, we rally a little bit for a couple of days and we sell off for a couple of days and rally for a couple of days. And that's really all that's been going on here. Uh, really, ever since mid uh, mid December, but again, that's also uh, you know that, that that's also bullish because markets are consolidating; they're not selling off. Which means, and, and one thing we've seen repeatedly is at the end of the day, like the markets will sell off early in the day, and then rally into the end of the day. And so buyers are showing up in those institutional hours at the last part of the day to to step in and buy stocks. That's kind of what you want to see, and that's very bullish. Um, in two weeks. And remember, we talked about this specifically back in last October when markets were selling off, we were deeply oversold. And we said, hey, we're going to get a year-end rally. One of the key drivers, there's three drivers for that. One is negative sentiment. Two is year-end positioning. And three is corporate buybacks. And you know, in October, that corporate buyback window was closed. It was going to open the first part of November. And that's when the rally started. And, and we had a, a huge surge in corporate share buybacks in November and December which was a key driver behind that rally for those two months. That window closed mid-December heading into earnings. It's now going to reopen in two more weeks. So once we get through this month, uh, that corporate share buyback window will open as we head into February and March. And you know, we could see some potential, depending on you know, how strong those buybacks are, that's going to be another kind of support to push asset prices here in the short term. So again, you know, nothing wrong here. Um, at all with the markets, they're they're continuing to kind of do what they do. If there's a if if you want to talk about a can you know there there's a concern or you know whatever it is that you know the only concern that you know I can come up with and again it's really just a question of you know the how the markets are behaving. We're back to the same type of of analysis that we were doing last year. The the big magnificent seven, which is you know Google, uh, which is in your communication space. Meta, which is in your communication space, uh, Apple, Microsoft, NVIDIA, which is in technology, those those by and far away are driving the S&P versus, you know, everything else. And so, you know, eventually you would think at some point that we're going to get some type of, 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 of rotation within the markets and some of these out of favor sectors will become much more relevant to the overall market. But you can you, know, you can kind of see this once again, uh, when we look at the relative versus absolute performance of the market, communications by far and away the leaders. Um, and then at the bottom is energy utilities and materials, which are economically sensitive. So again, and, and this little dot over here is technology. So the communications and tech, you know, by far and away, you know, leading, you know, kind of the the, the momentum of the market momentarily. And, and we would expect that to change at some point, but this was the story of all last year as well. Right. And, the same thing, and, and the same thing really goes if we take a look at factors, which are all the different kind of forms of, of what drives the market, uh, whether it's small cap, mid cap, large cap, um, mega capital growth, you know, mega cap growth, those type of things. We see momentum, mega cap growth, um, you know, the large cap stock driven indexes. Those are leading the charge and everything else is just kind of dragging around. Gold miners are, are way out of favor, um, equal weights uh, dropping. Um, you know, so we're seeing that can't, same kind of rotation um, in the market 
so far this year that drove the market most of last year. That's disappointing because it leaves a lot of stocks out of the race, but you know, it is what it is. Right. And it's interesting to see ARC down there in that bottom left quadrant yeah. because it, 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 I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, is it's showing it really is the mag seven that's pulling everything up right. uh, that even the rest of technology uh, is, is being left behind. Yeah. And, and same thing with, you know, RSP is, is fairly, um, you know, down here and, and heading towards oversold, uh, small caps, uh, international markets. Remember, we, we had all this conversation last year that international is cheap relative to the U.S. It's going to be the place to be. And it's already underperforming this year by a significant degree. Uh, a lot of the rally that small caps had in November, December, they've given that up. So, uh, you know, again, we're just seeing that migration out of those areas back into this handful of stocks where it's more two reasons for that. One, it's high liquidity. It's easy in, easy out. So if I'm managing a couple of billion dollars or five billion or a hundred billion, um, it's easy for me to buy Apple, Microsoft and Google. I can shove a lot of money in there. It doesn't affect the price of the stock. And if something goes wrong, I can get it out fairly quickly without devastating the stock price. Can't do that with all these small cap companies. Um, the, the second thing is, is that's what we call earnings certain. These companies, we know going into earnings season, they're going to crank out their earnings, right? They're going to, you know, Google, Microsoft, they're going to have earnings growth. Uh, Amazon's going to have earnings growth. We're going to see that on the, on the, uh, uh, the data side of their business. We're, so from an earnings certainty standpoint, we see that there. And we talk, if we look at earnings overall, earnings growth is expected to come from technology and communications. Pretty much everything else is going to have flat to negative earnings growth this year, a little bit coming out of healthcare as well, but not nearly to the extent of the drivers being technology communications, kind of really just driving that whole earnings growth that we're expecting to see out of the out of the market. Um, I guess another factor on that too, which is just, and it's what works, right? I mean, for a long time, yeah. I mean, a long time, <laughs> back when they were Fang, and then there was MAGA, and then there was all sorts of Fangmen, and just all sorts of other acronyms. Now it's the Magnificent Seven, right? Yeah. Basically, that that small complex has been the engine that has pulled the market's higher for really the past decade minus 2022, right? Yeah. Well, and, and again, it's, you know, we've talked about it before. It's, you know, when you, when every dollar that goes into an ETF, 30 cents of it goes into, you know, basically 10 stocks. I think it's like 37 cents or something. I mean, it's closer yeah. to 40, I think. Yeah. It's, it's pushing up there. So, but again, you know, when you have, you know, when, and, and, you know, with most people now giving up trading stocks and just buying ETFs, especially on the retail side. And you take a look at retail flows of, of how much money's flowing in, you know, from, from retail investors, how much money there's flowing into ETFs versus individual stocks. There's this big divergence. So, you know, every time they just pile in and buy, I'm just going to buy the S&P and, you know, just kind of live my life. That's fine and dandy, but you're sending 40 cents of 35, 40, whatever the number is now into just a handful of stocks. So they just keep getting this money flow. Again, another reason why, hedge funds want to buy these stocks is they know they're going to get an embedded amount of inflow of capital into those stocks, which are going to drive the stock prices higher. All right. Um, hey, do me a favor, pull, pull back up the original chart you had, you know, the normal one that we see every week. Oh, okay. um, I just want you to, I, I kind of get it, but I just want you to explain to people, because I think for in some people's brains, um, it just feels... Um, counterintuitive that we can still have a sell signal in place yep but be hitting an all-time high 
Yeah. Um, well, just because, you know, cell signals are always interesting from standpoint it, it, because, you know, it doesn't mean that just because you have a cell signal, it doesn't mean markets have to crash, right? And, and, and this is why people get, you know, confused by tech, uh, you know, by technical indicators. Uh, oh, they don't, you know, technical indicators is all voodoo. It doesn't work. And, and sometimes technical indicators will give you a signal and then the market will do something else for a period of time. And we can kind of look back, you know, at, at a similar period. You know, we got a sell signal back in, you know, late June. And we were talking about here on the show, we we're saying, hey, we got a sell signal here, suggests that upside might be somewhat limited in the market. And then the market just kept rallying into July because we had all this, you know, chase of AI right in the middle of that whole momentum driven AI moment. And, 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 and so it's like, ah, see, the technical indicators are wrong. The markets are still going up because of, you know, what it is. We're like, hey, just be careful with this because what this indicator is telling you is that you're going to have a correction of some sort. And we did. It just took a little bit longer to get there. And then you had that 10, 10% correction going into, into the end, uh, end of October of last year. So, you know, it's not uncommon when you have a sell signal that the market's upside is limited. Doesn't mean it has to go down. Um, and we have been working through this overbought process now for over a month. So again, it's not surprising. And, and we talked about before, you know, even in a correction of anything, whether it's economic data or whether it's stock market prices or a stock, an individual stock price, the stock price can be declining, but it's going to bounce on the way down, right? It's, it's going to head to lower lows. We, it, it's heading in that direction. But even during that bounce lower, you're going to have these spurts of activity where, where buyers step in and buy it and they run the price up a bit and then they sell it all again. And so that's what happens sometimes with these technical indicators is they, they give you a good signal. We've had a good signal here for the last month or so. And now we're starting to get some indicators. And again, if, if this sell signal turns back into a buy signal, it's going to do so at a fairly high level. So what does that mean? Well, it means the market's likely going to go up, but that upside advance is probably limited because you're you're moving from a, 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 a slightly reduced level back to a, a very overbought level very quickly. So the upside of the market is going to be a lot more limited. So in other words, instead of seeing another 15% advance like we saw in October, November, where we started from extremely oversold levels. See, this was a perfect setup. Uh, back in October, uh, uh, late October, September and, and late October, because we were very oversold on multiple levels. And that gave the market room. You had very negative sentiment. Positioning was weak. Uh, people had sold everything. Um, the outlook was terrible. And that's a great contrarian setup for a nice rally in the market, which is exactly what we saw. So we had this nice 15% advance. If you get a buy signal here, that's fine. It's going to suggest the market's going to set an all-time high. But we're likely not going to get a whole bunch more after that because you're already back to overbought. You've already stretched the buyers and sellers. The buyer, the, you know, we never had a big reduction in the buyers. The sellers really never came out in force. So that imbalance of buyers and sellers is still still not there yet that you need to create a much bigger advance in the market. Optimism still high. Allocations are very high. Cash allocations are very low. So, you know, that's you know, you, you will get a breakout to the upside. It may move another two, three, four percent, but then we're going to have an, another correction, you know, coming fairly shortly. Okay. Um, so we've been trading in this, this pink box, right, for the past month or so. So we've been range bound. Uh, if I heard you correctly earlier, the longer we trade in that box, the more bullish you become about the market's future direction, right? Because it's right. consolidating 
it's it's burning off whatever might remain of of the previous overbought conditions, um, right. and then giving the market a little bit more room to run higher. But before we turned on the camera here, we were sort of talking about um, the psychological magnetic force of both big round numbers and um, you know all time highs and whatnot. So uh, from that conversation, you know. It seems like you and I both agree that we're probably going to hit a new all-time high here uh, if one hasn't even been hit by the end of today, um, just because markets like to say, don't think I can make a new all-time high? Here, hold my beer, right? <laughs> um, exactly. Yeah. So so with that, uh, the gravitational force of a of a big round number, you know, at 4,800 on the S&P, 5,000 isn't all that far away. Um, so I'm just going to ask you to prognosticate a little bit. You think we'll hit 5,000 this year? Um, our target for this. So, you know, look, it's you, you've always got to, you know, when, you know, at the beginning of every year, Wall Street comes out and they go, um, you know, here's our, our estimate of ranges for this year. And, and you know, the market's going to do this or that or the other thing, whatever it is. And, you know, they're always bullish. They're all they're always, you know, extremely optimistic about, you know, the, the outlook for the market and kind of where we're going to be over the next you know years or whatever. And right now, the average estimate for the S&P is around 5,100 uh, for this year. So, you know, I don't like doing that because, again, there's so many things that can happen. And, and trying to predict anything more than about a year out is, is, is really kind of futile to do that. But that's why, you know, we do this analysis uh, that we publish at the beginning of every year, which looks at a, a variety of ranges in the market. So if you take a look at valuations, um, earnings growth, those type of things. And then we can say, okay, look, if we have a year where we have multiple expansions, so it's a year where we increase the multiple of the market, but we don't really grow earnings that much, which is kind of what we saw in 2020, uh, last year in 2023, yep. we had a big year, multiple expansion, market was up 22%, earnings didn't really grow that much. So if we have that, if we want to say, look, you know, we're going to, we're going to be at 24 times earnings at the end of this year on a multiple expansion basis, that's 5,200. Um, but if we go, if we do have an economic slowdown and we have to reprice for lower earnings, um, then you're probably talking about a historical multiple closer to 19. And now you're talking maybe, you know, 4,600 in that range, somewhere around there. So there's no, there's nothing that, and again, this is just how the market's going to process data this year. A lot's going to depend on the Fed, whether they aggressively loosen policy or not, whether or not you have a recession. Um, you know, whether or not economic activity is going to generate the earnings growth that people expect. And so from that, you can build kind of a range of estimates that run anywhere right now from about 4,200 to 5,200. So you've got about a thousand point range. That's really anybody's guess of how this year turns out. All right. All right. And I was just sort of thinking as we get closer to 5,000, do you get this increased like tractor beam hold to yeah, it? Yeah. Just because Absolutely. of the psychology, right? We yeah, want to yeah, ring no. that bell. Yeah, no, absolutely. If we if we can break the site, so uh, the all time high is right around forty eight oh four, and we're we're knocking on that door right now for an all time high. So we're not there yet. We haven't set it as a Friday while we're talking right now. We haven't done it yet. Doesn't mean we won't by the end of the day. Um, but no, if you can break decisively above forty eight hundred, then that you know you're going to get a lot of excitement in the headlines and the media is like, oh, it's a new new all time high. The bear market of twenty twenty two is now officially over. Uh, so it wasn't a bear market. It was a correction because you consolidated it and broke out of it very quickly. If there's a bear market, bear markets generally take five years to get back to new all-time highs. Um, 
different story, different conversation another day. <laughs> um, but if we get above that level, the correction will officially be over. Um, investors will now have made some money over the last two years. Uh, so they'll start to actually catch up on their 6% a year that they've missed out on. Um, and, and now that that push towards that psychological big round number of 5,000, it's going to be there, but it's 200 points, 200 points on 5,000. I mean, you know, it's not that, that it's, you know, 10%. So, you know, it's not that big of an advance from where we are right now. But again, that's about average for what we would expect in a pre-presidential election. Okay. All right. Well, look, I got to move on from here just because we got a ton of other stuff coming up. But related to this conversation, um, you do have a new piece out. Uh, it's titled Q4 Earnings Season Gets Underway with Low Expectations. Um, this just sort of seems like more what we're used to, right? You, you like to call it millennial earnings season, right? Where everybody gets a trophy, right? We, we, we keep ratcheting down the expectations. So at the end of the day, everybody can step over it and declare victory. Um, uh, you get a lot of charts, a lot of other stuff in that piece. Uh, anything about it you want to highlight? Let's let's do that. I, I do want to note in there, just because it's relevant to what we were just talking about, you do have a section in there called valuations uh, still at risk. And so I, I do want to get a sense for your level of comfort right now with general market valuations, um, given that we're at this breakout point, right? If, if you're concerned, presumably if you're concerned about where valuations are today, they jump higher from here in the short term. I'm going to guess you're going to get even more concerned about valuations. <laughs> right. Well, look, you know, I'm a, look, I'm a, I'm a fundamental investor at the end, at, at the end of the day. When it's all said and done, you know, we look at fundamentals. In the short term, fundamentals don't matter. Valuations don't matter. Value in the course of 12 months. So again, you know, the, 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 the crime that we have committed as Wall Street and the media on individual investors is that we have turned the markets into a giant casino. Um, you know, look, shows like yours, um, shows like mine, shows like CNBC, we talk about stuff that's here and now today, right? It's like, oh, you know, you know, this is happening in China or this is happening in Israel. And so we all immediately gravitate trying to figure out what does that mean for the markets over the next one day, two day, five day, 10 day. It really doesn't matter. What we should be doing, if, if we were being prudent, you know, analysts, we should be saying, look, over the next five years, this is what the market should do based on these economic drivers. What happens between one year and five years is irrelevant. Um, but when you're talking about fundamentals, it takes time for these fundamental plays to work out. And so you've got to give them time. The problem is, is the average holding period for investors is now less than four months. So what's the point of talking about valuations that are going to take five or 10 years to play out when your holding period is four months, right? So, you know, Valuations matter and they matter a lot because valuations are what will ultimately drive your returns over time. And it is a function of just how math works. So if valuations are expected to contract because they're very elevated right now and we expect a valuation contraction over the next 10 years, your returns will be closer to zero um, or less. If you, if you have a good valuation multiple, and you can you can make the case for a valuation expansion over the next you know ten years. Your returns are going to be high. So it's just simply that. But see, we don't even talk about that. We're we're all focused right now. And, you know, I've I've ranted on this a good bit on our show last year, talking about you know the biggest 
fallacy and, and the biggest crime that individuals do to themselves. And the reason that the majority of investors are not successful in investing their own money. And again, I'll say the majority, not all, but most people are not successful at managing their own money because they benchmark their performance from January the 1st to December 31st and look at an S&P index, which has nothing to do with your financial outcome. Instead of looking at their portfolio over three years or five year periods, say, have I done over three or five years? Am I generating a rate of return that will get me to retirement? It doesn't matter what the stock market does. It doesn't. What matters is, is are you generating enough money to get to your goal? So are you making progress towards your goal? Right. Yeah. And that's what's important. But see, we don't do that. We just we're all so focused on trying to beat this, you know, this mythical index game, which, you know, has no cash, has a substitution effect pays no taxes, has no fees or expenses. It's just, it has nothing to do with how your portfolio actually works. But this is what we, we want to chase, this car, this phantom car that doesn't even really exist in the real world. So, and this is why we make so many mistakes on managing our money and why our, our return and outcomes are poor over time. And, and if you don't believe that, that's why 80% of people, even though they're invested, have no money in the bank because they don't do well. Um, so, you know, this is so valuation is very important. Yes, I'm concerned. Valuations are currently running at about 24 times reported earnings, 21 times uh, uh, operating earnings, which if you don't know what operating is, if you don't know, if you don't know the difference, the reason that Wall Street switched from gap earnings in the 90s to operating earnings in 2000 was because operating earnings look a whole lot better because basically it strips out all the stuff that can happen to a company like paying expenses. So you know, it's the most optimistic outcome, you know, and if you don't know what operating, they're also called performa. Performa earnings used to be in the back of the of the 10Q report that was put out by companies. Gap earnings were in the front because that's what's reported for IRS purposes. In the very back, they said, hey, this was our projection of what we thought we would do this year. The gap report, what we actually did. And there's always a big difference between those two. But because Wall Street, like the operating numbers, are always positive and always optimistic because they're, they're, they're our unicorn numbers. If everything in the world goes right this year, we're going to have this fantastic rate of growth. So Wall Street says, hey, let's use those numbers because now that makes everything look better and we can sell more stocks based on those numbers than we can, base, than we can sell on, on, on gap earnings. So we started using these operating earnings to make everything look better. So there's currently a big gap between operating earnings going forward over the next 12 months versus expected gap earnings. And that gap is going to close at some point. If you have an economic slowdown, those operating numbers go right out the window. And the problem with using operating earnings as an investor is that you wind up overpaying for stocks consistently. And then when gap becomes a reality, that's why you have these big drawdowns in stocks and why you lose a lot of money in stocks very quickly is because that reality comes home very quickly uh, into the numbers. So, you know, so yes, I'm very concerned about valuations over the next 10 years, based on where valuations are right now, your returns are going to be close to zero. And look, you've already had two years of a zero rate of return. We're not back to all-time highs yet. We went through January 22, all the way through January of 23 to January of 24, and the market's still not back to all-time highs yet. Yes, we're close, but we're not there yet, which means you've had two years. If you were expecting 6% growth each year, you have not done that. You spent a year losing money and a year getting it back. That's not making money. That's breaking even. And that's not investing. So that's how over time you can have these big rallies in the markets and a great period to go examine about valuations and what happens to return. Go look back in 2000 to 2017. Go back and look at 1960 to 1975. 
you know, those are periods where markets returns. And of course, not to mention 1929 to 1950, you know, those are periods where investors spent decades, a decade or more, I should say, not decades, that makes it sound much worse, but they spend a decade or more um, basically making no money and returns. And you hear a lot of this stat, you know, there's no period in history where 10 years have had a negative rate of return. Well, it's not exactly true once you include inflation. There's no period where the market had a negative rate of return. Not really true after inflation. There are very long periods. But even if I have a 20-year period on a nominal basis, making 1% over 20 years ain't getting me to my goal, right? So you know, valuations matter a lot. We just don't recognize that now because we're so tied up in our four-month window that we're trading stocks. We're not looking at the long-term ramifications of what's going to happen to our money over time. Got it. All right. Well put. One quick clarification. Um, you kept mentioning gap earnings. Um, I just want to, and then you talked about the gap between yeah. performers and gap earnings. When you're talking about gap earnings, you're talking about um, generally accepted accounting, accounting principles, G-A-A-P. Right. That's what that acronym stands for. It's basically, you know, because companies report have to report on a regular basis, uh, the, the gap standard basically tells them what's acceptable. In other words, you just can't make anything up, report it willy-nilly any way you want to to try to make it look as rosy as possible. You actually have to follow these specific accounting rules. And again, because they kind of bleed all the the fun out of it, you know, <laughs> uh, that's where the pro forma stuff got, you know, it started getting more attention because Wall Street realized it could sell that sizzle, right? Exactly. So, and, and again, you know, and gap earnings are also known as reported earnings. So when you hear the term reported earnings, that is gap. That's that's the same thing. And by the way, just be careful with that statement, Adam, because there was a, a study um, by McKinsey and a couple of other big accounting firms, and they surveyed uh, the accounting statements and CFOs of, of major companies. And they found out that up to 10% of the gap reported earnings are fudged by the CEO CFOs of companies to make the numbers look better for reporting. Although that technically is called fraud, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, we just fudge. We it's just small fudges, but that's why we do stock buybacks as well because it makes reported earnings look better. All right. All right. And then, um, you know, to your point about um, if you're understandably very concerned about valuations, that we, you know, could be looking at a prolonged period of kind of zero uh, returns in the market. Um, you know, a, a, an investor might hear that and say, well, geez, then why play the game then, right? Like, why put my money in the market if it's not going to do anything likely for the next five years, right? And I, I think the answer to that, but I want you to give your own, you know, is, hey, yeah, if, if, if even in a period where the market is flat from beginning point A to end point B, there's a lot of road to travel in there and there's a lot of volatility and there's ups and there's downs and that a, a yes, a passive portfolio may make zero return over this period, but an actively managed portfolio has the potential to make money on the upsides, money on the downsides. You got to get a good, you know, experienced professional to help you navigate that, but you can still make money over that time. You're not, you're not doomed to a 0% return. Yeah, no, that, that's right. And, and again, if you look back, you know, a great period to look back at. And so, you know, we're talking about math, right? Um, and, and so if I have a year just, you know, let's let's just do it this way, right? We'll make it really easy. So 10 years. So in year one, I have a 10% return, a gain. In year two, I have a 10% loss. In year three, I have a 10% gain. Year four, I have a 10% loss. Just back and forth. We do that for 10 years, right? 
Well, if you add that up over time, because the 10% loss is always more ultimately on paper than the 10% gain, right. you actually wind up losing money. And so you look back over that 10-year period and go, my return was basically zero, a little bit less. My return was basically zero over 10 years, but I had five years where I had 10% gains. How does that happen? And a great period to go look at is, is go look at 1999, 2000 through 2000, you know, 13, 15, 17, somewhere around there. And you can look at it nominally. You can look at it inflation adjusted. It's, it's all the same. But during that period, returns were basically zero. But you had, you had very strong bull market rallies in there, right? 2003 to 2007 had, had a nice, big, strong bull market rally. Then you had a 50% correction. You had the 50% correction coming off the dot-com crash. Um, you know, so when you start looking at these periods where you give up big chunks of your gains, you can look back over that that time frame and say, you know, what was my net return on a buy and hold basis? But, you know, you know, to your point, Adam, this is the, the important thing about active management. If I can avoid those big downturns to some degree, I don't have to avoid all of it. Right. You know, if the markets are down 50 and you're down 10, that's OK. Nothing wrong with that, because when you get that next bull market cycle, you're going to be back to even very quickly and then start making money. And there's going to be an any sideways market over a period of time. You're going to have these periods of, of a year or two uh, where the where the market really takes off, does tremendous, and then you're going to wind up giving up a bunch of it. You know, my big concern going forward is looking back, and you know, we've written some articles about this here recently. You know, if you look back through history from from 1900 to 2023, the market return on average about eight percent a year. That's exactly what it should do. That's six percent capital appreciation, which aligns with six percent economic growth, four percent in dividends, less inflation. So I get you about eight percent. That's exactly what the market should do. So if you look at 1900 to 2008, markets kicked off about eight percent a year annualized. Now, that's not average. Markets don't do that every year. You didn't get 8% a year. There were big, long periods where you had zero rates of return. You had massive drawdowns in 74 and 2000 and 2008. So you got to be careful when somebody says, oh, the average return is this. That's the average. That's not reality. Very, very big difference about how that impacts your money. But the important thing is, is that from 2009 through 2023, markets returned 12% a year on average. And that was because of 43 trillion of capital invested in the markets. We talked about this in the show before. So my concern going forward is, is, is unless the Fed is going to go back to zero interest rates, doing successive rounds of quantitative easing of $120 billion a, a month or whatever it is, and the government's going to start sticking a lot of capital back into the system, sending checks to households or whatever, um, then where's all the liquidity going to come from? to generate that 12% annualized rate of return. X that, we get back to economic growth of 2%, which means stocks will return 2% because stocks and, and, and the economy are, are basically linked. 2% dividend yield, so there's four, minus inflation of two. So you know, you're back to two. So without all that monetary liquidity, returns are going to be a lot lower. But even if returns go back to 8% a year, that's going to be really disappointing compared to the 12 everybody's gotten used to, right? Mm -hmm. So, yes. you know, it's going to be, and look, I get emails from people all the time. It's, it's like, oh, hey, look, Lance, I want to give you, I want to give you some money to manage. I just need 15% a year to reach my goal. I'm like, thank you very much for emailing. Have a great day. <laughs> it's not realistic, but that's what people have gotten used to over the last 
10 years because all this massive surge in monetary liquidity. And I don't know whether or not we can sustain that. I do know that in order to sustain the level of spending that we're doing, and I have an article out today on the website at realinvestmentadvice.com talking about how the deficits are sustaining yeah. our economic growth. It's on my list. We're getting there. Okay. Well, in order to fund that deficit, the Federal Reserve will have to monetize up to 40% of that debt long-term, which yeah. means you know, you're talking about a Fed balance sheet now north of $30 trillion at some point to monetize that debt into 2050. So you know, that's the only way you can keep justifying just an exponentially high multiple in the market and this continued growth rate in stocks because stocks are no longer attached to economic reality. And either at some point, stocks are gonna have to return back to what the economy can actually generate, or you're gonna have to have this massive surge of liquidity that just continues indefinitely. And at some point, stock buybacks even become problematic because companies are gonna buy themselves back. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's only so many shares out there. And, and when was the last time you saw an Apple or a Microsoft split their stock? Yeah, a long time. Yeah. Um, th this is sort of getting to the the Stephanie Pomboy, you know, like she's like, look, there's so many things out there right now. I I, I really don't know what I have confidence in, except yeah. that I think that the the pressure release valve for all this is going to be. And she was talking about this more in the short term, but I know she's talking about it long term as well. Is going to be the dollar, meaning the purchasing power of the dollar is going to be sacrificed, right? So the Fed goes and monetizes all that stuff, you know regardless of what the reported inflation rate is, the dollar is just going to buy less, right? I don't, I, maybe, because, but that didn't happen during the last monetization round. The dollar got stronger. No, no, no. That, 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 you're, I think you're talking about the DXY. We're ta I'm just talking about purchasing power. I'm just talking about regular people and what their money can buy. Like, you know, okay. if you live the past, if you live during the period of, you know, leading up to 2022, right? And we had right. too little inflation, right? As the Fed kept saying, the average person was like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> I mean, we weren't, we, we didn't have the crushing inflation we've had in the past two years, but the average person was seeing a lot of stuff go up. You know, I remember railing about health insurance going up double digit year after year after year, long before things got crazy with COVID, right? Oh, yeah. Well, but but again, those are policy choices. We talked about that before. I mean, you know, the affordable. Yeah, well, care so is monetizing forty percent of the debt. Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah, choice. yeah. But 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 also, you know, Affordable Care Act. When you know we talked about those issues previously, you know, that's what drove your healthcare costs. Oh, sure, but but we I could have said that about a ton of other things as well. Yeah. So yeah. so I'm saying it's not just the Fed monetizing debt that causes that problem. But yeah, no, I don't disagree with what you or she is saying. She's yeah. right from that standpoint. You know, uh, you know, the problem with debt, and we've said this so many times, is it doesn't generate economic prosperity. It does just the opposite. It's it's a massive wealth transfer from the the poor and the middle class to the rich. And this is why, if you take a look at, you know, it was an interesting chart out the other day. It says, um, you know, thirty six percent of the market is owned by households, and the rest is owned by foreign investors and pensions and those type of things, right? So, but households own a tremendous chunk of the stock market. Sounds sounds encouraging until you realize that ninety, basically ninety percent of that is owned by ten percent of income earners. Actually, it's ninety three percent that they yeah. just came out of. Yeah, yeah, ninety three percent is owned by the top ten percent of households. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, so that, be careful so, on this, Lance, because you can wind me up, and we can talk a whole more. <laughs> time well, no, I'm just, I'm just saying, you know, the the the, the issue to, to Stephanie's point, I'm agreeing with her. 
is that the things that we're doing to sustain a minimal rate of economic activity and rather than letting the economy grow organically or contract organically as it should be let to do, we're just making things worse for the vast majority of Americans because we're just transferring their wealth to the upper income classes or the ones that are providing the jobs, providing the, the stuff, right? Um, that we all use and consume the service, you know, the service providers, whatever they are, you know, those are the people that are absorbing the capital that we're getting. And, and so we keep doing these kind of same, you know, bad, making these bad same decisions over and over and over again, expecting a different outcome. And things just keep getting worse for the, 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 the poor and the middle class. All right. Well, now you've done it because I am going to dig more deeply into this now with you. Um, and I still have a lot to get through. So we, we have right. to box this real quick. I just want to, a note I made after reading your, your deficit spending piece. Um, I don't know if you saw it today, but there was a, there was a little like TikTok clip that was making its way around um, that I, I, I grabbed it because I said, maybe this is the perfect visualization for this eternal deficit spending. Um, it, it's a, it's a rat on the New York subway and he got stuck on an escalator and he's trying to get up the escalator, but he didn't realize it's an escalator. So he's just in this loop where he's not going anywhere, but he keeps going up stair after stair after stair. And he's wondering why he's not getting anywhere, right? And yeah, it's, it's sort of- It's sad. It's, 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 it's sad. And of course they're putting it to like Rocky music and you know, that stuff, right? But um, <clears throat> it, it, is that a good visualization of where we are right now, deficit spending, where we have to kind of keep spending more and more just to keep the system going at this relatively anemic rate, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, you know, without the deficit spending, you know, we would be in a in, in a deep recession, right? I mean, it's just there's no two ways about it, and and so yeah, we keep we have to keep spending more. We you know, if it wasn't for the Chips Act, if it wasn't for the Inflation Reduction Act, if it wasn't for all this other money that we've put out there, you know, um, you know, we would be in a much worse situation. And by the way, uh, just. From a political standpoint, it's not the president that does this. We we all blame the president, you know, President Trump, President Biden, you know, whoever we're blaming for these issues. They're not the ones that spend money. It's Congress. Congress has the purse springs. They're the ones that pass the bills and it approves it, and that's how money gets spent. And yes, the the president has to sign off on it, but Congress is the one that that drives the spending. And so, you know, when we look at you know who we're really voting for, the president really doesn't matter nearly as much. And we make a big deal out of the president. But you really got to look at who you're electing in the Congress and the Senate. That's where all the the the, the problems actually occur. Um, but you know, we just keep you know our our whole reality has now become. And look look at what's happening with this whole debt ceiling, right? We just kind of keep kicking the debt ceiling out. We say, oh, we got you know, if we don't pass the spending bill, which you know we just passed a spending bill yesterday, which will kick the can down for another couple of months until we hit the the the, the can again. Um, you know, but we just keep spending more and more money and we don't even have a budget. We just, you know, just, you know, we'll just spend the same amount of money and we'll just approve some more. And right. And, and sorry to interrupt, but technically we don't even have a debt ceiling right now. Yeah, right? exactly. It was, it, it was Armageddon. And then we just agreed, well, you know what, we'll just pretend it doesn't exist for the next exactly. year. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And so we can just kind of keep spending money at, at, but this is what politicians want because it keeps them in office it's it's what makes people feel good. I thought there was a really great video on TikTok the other day. Uh, there was a, uh, a reporter and he, he went into uh, Chicago suburbs. And, you know, most of these are 
the suburbs, you know, kind of these are lower income suburbs of, of Chicago. And President Biden recently passed a spending bill that was going to spend, you know, like $240 million in these underserved areas of Chicago and other major cities. So Houston, Chicago, you know, San Francisco and others. We're going to spend all this money um, on these underserved communities. And so he was interviewing the people, the citizens of these communities and saying, what do you think about this? You know, the, the Biden administration is going to spend all this money in your community. What do you think? It's like, oh, this would be great. We can get after school programs, keep our kids off the street. We can increase, you know, we can get better education system for our kids. You know, we can, you know, get better health care services for, for our families, which are really lacking. You know, one of the big problems right now that's happening in a lot of these cities is they're getting food deserts because of all the theft. Grocery stores are leaving. Yep. And, and so the, they need services. They need access to services. And and so they were, they were like, this is great. This will All this money will be fantastic for our community. And then the reporter says, yeah, they're going to be putting electric chargers into your neighborhoods for electric vehicles. And they're like, nobody can afford an electric vehicle right. in the neighborhood. What's this going to do for us, right? But this is this is government, right? We we you know, who's the go back now? We talked about this before. Who benefits from putting electric chargers in these underserved communities, right? What bill? What lobby effort was done saying, oh, Mr. Biden, you need to put electric car chargers in these underserved neighborhoods for electric vehicles that they don't even have because they can't afford them. This is good. And so now we're going to spend all this money that's going to make the providers of these chargers a lot richer, but it's not going to help society or the economy at all. And this is the problem with all of our spending. If you take a look at all of our spending, it's never directed at increasing the economic prosperity of the, the, the vast majority of Americans. It always benefits a very small, finite group of people yeah. that are generally the providers of the goods or services that, yeah. are, that are the receivers of the money. It's lining the pocket of the special interests that push for the initiative. All right, look, we could talk about this forever, so I, I got to not, but here was the, here, we went, I'm going to talk about part a little bit more because this was the question I wanted to ask you. And this is probably a whole video in and of itself, but I just want to at least scratch it with you here for a second. Okay. So to your point about how um, this is the way the system works and basically, um, you know, the, the, the more spending we do, the more it has to be funded, the more it's funded and monetized, you know, that whole circle of, of uh, spending and what we might want to consider to be fiscal abuse to a certain extent. Um, it, it manifests in increasingly transferring wealth from the many to the few, right? And here's the question I just wrestle with, which is, how do we get out of that? Like, that's... That's the issue I, I I find myself sort of thinking about late at night is like, I just wish I had more optimism where I felt like, oh, well, here are some other options where we that might end, right? I don't see that many. I mean, short of the really bad ones, you know, the system breaking down, the currency failing, you know, or just, you know, civil unrest where enough people just grab their pitchforks and say, we're done and they march on the White House, right? Do you have a different view? Yeah. Like I, I'm, I'm looking for optimism here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. There, look, there are so many things that we could do, right? Uh, let, let's let, let's take a, let's take an easy one right now. Uh, you know, one of the big concerns is our social security welfare system. Okay, yeah. but but real quick, let's talk about not just can but likely, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. No, no. I can think of a lot I, of great things we should be doing, but I just don't feel like well, we're going. That's to. <laughs> well, well. That's my whole point, right? 
we have a choice and you know it, it's like with anything it, you know look you're really let, let's take it from a, a different perspective right so you're really out of shape you haven't taken care of yourself you've been overeating eating for years you've been drinking heavily and smoking cigarettes okay now you have a couple of choices either you can start by making small changes right so i'm gonna stop smoking but i'm still gonna drink and eat too much right and then once i kick my cigarette habit then i work on my drinking habit and each one of those fixes are very tough to do, but it's not just this massive life-shattering alteration. Right. You're just not going cold turkey overnight. Everything. Yeah. Correct. You can do that a little bit at a time and improve your health and make yourself live longer and have a much better life. Or you can keep doing that until you wind up in emergency care in the hospital and the doctor says, here's your choice. You either quit drinking, smoking, and overeating today, or you're going to die by tomorrow, right? And all of a sudden, you have to go through this massive shift. And this is the, the same thing in our environment today. We have choices. If we could elect, and again, it's not the president. Get rid of this idea that the president is going to fix anything because he's not the guy. It's the people in Congress and the Senate. That's who we should be. We should be spending our effort on electing the people in Congress and Senate that are going to make better decisions for us as a population, right? We have 330 people, oh, sorry, we have 550 people directing the outcome of 330 million. Elect better people. And so the, the point is, is they could be making small decisions today to start moving us in the right direction that would be very less painful. Uh, yes, we're gonna have to give up a little here, give up a little over there. You're not gonna get a check sent to your household. I'm sorry, in the next recession, you're gonna have to just suffer through it with everybody else. Or, at some point, to your point, the bond market, the dollar, they're going to fix the problem for you. And it's going to be amazingly difficult when that happens, because now you're talking about the next depression when that occurs. And, it'll, and, and it will occur at some point. That system will break because it's just simply a function of its own weight. Now, probably you and I will be dead before that happens, thankfully. But that's what our future will look like if we don't start making some changes now. But nobody yeah. in politics wants to actually do that. Yeah, you're so okay. So you're not making me feel any better. Um, I'll Maybe. earmark this for us to be able to talk about this. Uh, I'm just not seeing signs, even glimmers of green shoots, that we are moving towards the type of even small incremental at first reforms that you're talking about. Um, it really does feel to to my eyes that we are going to. The only thing that's going to wake us up is the heart attack. It's, it's the massive coronary that we hopefully survive. And then we then maybe start listening to the doctor. But well, this right. is because citizens have learned how to vote themselves a paycheck. So once you have gotten to the point where citizens are voting themselves a paycheck, that is a very difficult thing to change. OK. All right. Um, all right. Sorry for that depressing diversion. Let's get back on track here. Um, OK. Gosh, all these could be and none, none, of that, none of that has anything to do with today or the market going up. <laughs> so. Well, not yeah, not not with today today. But uh, all right. So uh, I want to talk about the reverse repo program, the BTFP. Um, okay. For those that have not seen it, I just want to give a plug for the video that, that just came out before this one uh, with Dave Bianco. Um, highly recommend um, you watch that one. And actually, if you if you want to understand how these programs really work, watch the video that came out before the Bianca one with um, Andy Constant, where he spends a lot of time just sort of talking about how the plumbing of both those programs work. But um, the reverse repo uh, facility 
continues to see drawdowns um, it, it, at its current pace. It's looking to zero out by about March. Um, and Bianco and others, I think, are, are you know really beginning to say this. This may be why the Fed changed its tune, you know, and surprised everybody. You know, beginning of December, we're not even thinking about rate cuts, and then all of a sudden, you know, two weeks later, hey folks, rate cuts coming. You know, get ready. Um, and um, and and you know, Dave and I talk a fair amount about his his reasons why. Um, but but basically, it comes down to the fact that that the reverse. Re <clears throat> Let's put it this way. Um, Reverse repo programs are a form of tightening, um, but when you drain, when, when when you're doing less tightening, right? When you're when you're when you're draining that program down, it actually acts as easing, and that has been a big cushion so far against the quantitative tightening that's happened, and even to a certain extent the rate cuts. And there's been other spending out there, the deficit spending that Lance was talking about, and, and a whole bunch of other things that have been pushing liquidity up too. But this has been a pretty big factor. And the concern is that once that's drained, like we haven't really been feeling the bite of QT because we've had the, this offsetting program going on. Once that gets drained, if it does indeed get drained, then we really start to feel the bite of QT. And presumably it's it's the kind of mental calculation of, of how bad that bite would actually feel to the economy, which has got the Fed saying, shoot, um, you know, we're... <laughs> We're worried about that. But anyways, let's, so so I just want to get your thoughts on this. Uh, so not surprisingly, uh, that is actually the subject of this weekend's newsletter on the website at realinvestmentadvice.com, as, as you always do, always generally ask me questions about stuff I've already written something on. Um, just but, to be clear, I just mentioned things and you have written on all of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, so this weekend's newsletter is going through exactly this, is that... Um, you know, you got two things that are going on right now. So you have the draining of the, the repo, the reverse repos are getting drained. At the same time in March, the bank term funding program that was the, the backstop for regional banks, uh, you know, last year, that also ends. And, you know, I and, and, and I can see the Fed letting the bank term funding program end because it's no longer being used for the purpose that it was meant for. It's now being gained by the banks. So the banks it's being are it's being abused. I have the stats here. Yeah. And it's it's just gone crazy. Keep talking. I'm gonna pull up a, a chart of how it's been used because you can yeah. see that now that folks realize that it's just free money, <laughs> it's going well, to the roof. You know, this is and see that but this is the problem with all this stuff, right? Is that when we do these things, the markets are very smart and they go, Hey, wait a minute, you mean I can borrow at this and I can loan at that and I can pick up the arbitrage in between? I'll do that. And that's how they make money. So they figured out how to make money with this BTFP program and have been arbitraging the crap out of it ever since, uh, you know, this thing really kind of started. And there's the chart for you. Yeah, so, look, at that, look at that green shade. You can see that's where word got out on how sweet a deal this was. And then yeah. everybody just started borrowing from it. So not surprising at all. Right. And so I, I can see them letting that program in because it's not being done anything. But the reverse repo is a, a different issue. And I think we talked about this previously uh, on the show, but just a quick recap. You know, if you go back to 2018, in September of 2018, the Fed was hiking rates, uh, much like we're doing now. And the Fed said, hey, we're nowhere near the neutral rate. And that freaked the markets out because the, the Fed's tightening, you know, hiking interest rates. We were doing a, basically a QT at the time. Um, and, and, and so the markets started freaking out. We were down by 20% over the next couple of months. And by December, the Fed hadn't hiked rates anymore come December. 
Um, but in December, uh, Donald Trump is threatening to fire Jerome Powell and, and all this markets are down 20%. And so Jerome Powell says, oh, we're a lot closer to neutral rate than we thought. I mean, just this complete 180. And then by June, they actually started cutting rates. And then by September, they're engaged in these massive reverse repo operations to bail out the banking system. Now, we didn't really have an idea of what was going on at the time, but there was all kinds of recessionary indicators that were going on. We had inverted yield curves. You know, the, the NFIB was signaling all kinds of recessionary signals out. Everything was telling us a recession was coming, and we were just months away from a recession. And then the trigger, the catalyst, the match that lit the, the fuse was basically shutting down the economy because of the pandemic just threw everything into a recession. So, but we had plenty of clues that something was wrong in the system. And so here we are today, very similarly, you know, the Fed's hiking rates and all of a sudden in two weeks, they go, well, we're nowhere near the neutral rate, but now we actually really are two weeks later. And now we're starting to talk about rate cuts and potentially ending QT and restarting QE later this year. Um, it just tells you that there's some financial stress. There's some fractures in the financial system somewhere that we may not actually see. But we have inverted yield curves. We have economic data that's telling us a recession is potential. We have a potential for a recession. You know, we talked, I think it was last week, we talked about, you know, having the tender and the logs and everything built yep. to make it higher. We just needed a match. We're just waiting on the match. What that match is going to be, we have no idea. But everything is there. And I think what the, you know, what's going on with this reverse repo system and, and what's happening with the banks and, you know, it's just telling us that there's a lot more fragility to the system than what the markets think. And the you know, markets are rallying up at this point, not really paying attention to the risk, but I think there's a lot more risk there. Than yeah. people and the market's priced in, I want to say not even six, I think seven rate cuts yeah. for next year. I mean, yeah. it's just like on crack. Yeah. Um, so, you know, so what's interesting about this, and I'm glad you mentioned the, the recent discussion that QT itself is potentially going to end by like end of Q1, because um, that's, that's a new rumor that's going around right now. Um, and when, you know, Powell had his surprise revelation at the press conference, uh, you were out that week, Mike Leibowitz was here with me, uh, recapping it. And, you know, we talked about this and Mike said, yeah, you know, either the fed really believes this stuff that it's, it's going to achieve the immaculate disinflation and it's going to have a baby soft landing. And yeah, now's the time to start cutting because you don't want to wait until you get down to 2% inflation. He said, or it's spooked by something that it's not telling us. And it seems now as more and more of this stuff begins to, to become a little clearer, probably was the latter. That the Fed, the Fed probably was freaked out about something. Yeah. And again, you know, you you have to end QT if you're going to rebuild the repo operations. So, you know, it's you, you can't keep draining that liquidity from the system if you're having to provide liquidity system. So it's and that's why, you know, that's why now everybody's going, okay, yeah, QT is going to end sooner than later. Could be March, could be June, but sometime within the first half of this year, we'll probably be back towards, you know, you know, initially they'll just stop QT. But I, so I won't be surprised that shortly after that, that they start increasing the balance sheet again. Okay. Um, and if it does, it just proves that, you know, we're, we're, we're never going to normalize the balance sheet. No. <laughs> yeah. no and, and again, like we said before, if the government's going to keep spending the way that they're spending money, the Fed's going to have to monetize up to 30% of that. So there's no way you're going to normalize the balance And what is normal, right? You have to remember the normal balance sheet was $330 million pre-2008. <laughs> right. And so 
you know, where, where you're, uh, where, you know, when you're talking about trillions upon trillions of dollars, we're nowhere near normal. Okay. I, my recollection, it was 800 billion. Which I'm sorry. Still... I'm sorry. It's 330 billion. I said million. It was 330 yeah. billion. Then it went to 800 billion. But yeah, now we're in trillion. So normalize, you know, back to a, even the billion dollar range, right? Just let's get back to a billion. That, oh yeah. Never, never going to happen. Right. Remember the whole, oh, it's going to be so boring. It's going to be like watching paint dry, right? Just yeah, yeah. all that stuff is just lies, right? Yeah, just, exactly. well, maybe back then I'm willing to say maybe back then it was naivete. Now it's just going to be lies. If they ever tell you, you know, oh no, no, no we're Don't worry. We're going to, we got to monetize today, but boy, boy we're going to, we're going to get rid of this later on. Just yeah. come on. Yeah. yeah. No, um, it, 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 and you know, it's just, and, and again, you know, I've written the articles on this recently about how the market has now been trained by the Fed, you know, like the Pavlovian response of, you know, Pavlov on the dogs ringing the bell is that in the end, this is why the markets are rallying so hard is that they rang the bell. They said, Hey, rate cuts are coming in QE. That means buy stocks. Yeah. Um, all right, look, we can talk about this forever. Um, one last point on the bank term funding program. Um, so in the conversation I had with, with Andy Constant about this, you know, I asked him, hey, how worried should we be about this expiration? Right, because it does look like it's it's probably going to be ended. Um, and he said, I I'm not that worried. And the, and the main reason why he said he wasn't that worried, um, be because, I mean, what I was asking is, is look, um, uh, a lot of the the assets that were impaired at the banks that the rescue operation was designed to help get off their books for a year, they're in even worse shape right now. With you know yields are higher now than they were back then in March of last year. So are these banks ready to reabsorb these bad assets? Um, and he said, "Well, look, not entirely sure what's going to happen, but he said what what could certainly be done is the banks can just." the very last day of the BTFP program, it's a one-year lending program. They can just go back and reloan everything and they can buy themselves another year. Yeah. So basically, who knows what's going to happen, but but to me, that feels like something that if it's available, yeah, why wouldn't the banks just do that and say, yeah, this has been good. We'll just you know set the ticker for another year and, and we'll worry about this a year from now. Yeah, look, if there's, look, if there's any, you're going to know very quickly. So come March when this program ends, if the Fed renews it for another year, you know there's a lot of problem with the banks. Well, I don't know if they necessarily have to renew it for a year, but it's it's when you borrow from the program. No, it's no, a year borrowing. It, right. No, yes, correct. Oh, but you're saying if they do extend it, then that's yeah, a strong they, if sign. They come, yeah, if they if yeah. they come up at the end of this period and say, because again, we know the banks are just gaming the system now, right? Right. And look, uh, the regional banks are doing okay. We haven't had more failures, everything's fine so far. But that's what I'm saying is that all of a sudden. If the Fed says, ah, yeah, we're going to push that, we're just going to let that program run for another 12 months or so, that's just telling you that there's more problems with those regional banks because yeah. of the delinquencies, et cetera, than, than what they're telling us. But again, remember, Credit Suisse passed the Fed stress test as <laughs> they were being absorbed by UBS. So... <laughs> yep, yeah, exactly. Yeah, the Fed gives you a pass and, you know, that and the five bucks probably won't even buy you a Starbucks coffee. Um, right. All right. Uh, I, I need your lightning round answer on this one. Yes, sir. Um, Two words. So one of the things that, that Bianco and I talked a fair amount about was his concerns. And, and I'm using him as a proxy because a lot of people I've talked about recently share these concerns that inflation may very well surprise to the upside later this year. 
Um, and I know your partner, Mike Leibowitz, just wrote a piece that says, you know, will we have another sort of 1970s style resurgence of inflation? How worried are you guys at RIA about that? Not. Not? Okay. You said lightning round answer. Do you want me to actually explain it? Um, <laughs> explain it for 60 seconds, but yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, we're going to, you'll see an uptick in inflation, but you're not going to go back to seeing the 9, 10, 11% rates that we saw previously because we don't have the economic capacity for it. Um, debt is disinflationary. The more debt we add on, it's more deflationary. You don't have the manufacturing backdrop. Um, services are slowing down. So all the money that we inject into the system that created the inflation to start with, that's leaving the system. So without, now, if you send checks to households, you're going to have another big surge in inflation. But in the short term, if we see a pickup in economic activity, you're going to see an uptick in inflation because inflation tracks economic activity. Yields will track inflation, which tracks economic activity. Right. So, what, yes. and, and what if what if we see economic activity pick up? I mean, it's measured by GDP. It's still not doing that bad. Yeah. But but to your point, no, let's no. say it ticks up. But what if it ticks up at a point where the Fed is cutting and ending QT? <laughs> that well, would be uh, even more inflationary, right? No. If, if, if economic activity, so economic activity is running about 2% for the fourth quarter, right? So we average analyzed last year, we're probably running close to three. So if, if so if you say, well, economic growth is going to be 4% this year, then inflation is going to be about 4%. So you'd see a pickup in inflation from three to 4%. That's what you should expect. Yields right. should be between four, four and a half percent in that environment. But just to be clear, if the Fed does make good on, hey, we're actually going to do three rate cuts next year and NQT and whatever, doesn't, doesn't that potentially suggest it could be even more inflationary? No, because uh, rate cuts and Q QE as a function are disinflationary. If you go back and look at inflation during the, the 2009 through 2020, before we started going crazy with checks and households, inflation ran close to 2%. Economic growth was close to 2%. And yields were basically depending on the, the, the maturity between zero and, and 3%. So that's, all those are gonna be aligned to some, some form and fashion. Now they're gonna go up and down based on economic activity, but Fed rate cuts does not translate into economic activity. Okay, all right, oh God. Because, because you're not, look, look, quantitative easing, and this is the big mistake that everybody, everybody makes. All quantitative easing is, is an asset swap between the banks and the Fed. Yep. That's it, right? Yep. There's no- that, Now, now it, it, it does creep into financial assets, so we can have that discussion. But yes, it creeps into financial assets because the banks then loan the money to the hedge funds, blah, 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 loan the reserves to the hedge funds, et cetera. But it doesn't, get, it doesn't create money supply and it doesn't get to the household. So you don't get increased economic activity inflation from QE because it never gets to the household. Right. But rate, you said rate cuts aren't inflationary. I mean, rate cuts theoretically stimulate the economy, get spending going, all that type of stuff. Not really, no. Because, okay. when the, because again, and actually there's a chart in uh, the article today on the website. Um, here, let me see if I can just find it for you real quick. I'll just, I'll just show you. One second. All right. No worries. Um, yeah, I just... Uh, we're going to have to put it. Why don't you pull up your your chart? We're going to have to put a pin in this because this is an important and interesting discussion, but just one that deserves way more time than I have to give it with the other things I'm trying to get through before we wrap up. I know. Here, hold on. Let me just share this real quick. Here. So this is so this is federal surplus deficit economic growth. So obviously, the more deficit you have, um, 
hold, hold on, back up real quick. So during this period from 2008 to 2020, so that big spike right here on the end, that's that's the 20 COVID bailouts. So you can look at over that period ahead of that, that whole period where we were increasing the debt, that's also when we're doing QE, that's also when we have zero interest rates, economic growth was flat. It just, and this is nominal, by the way, this is not real. Uh, inflation just so it's just nominal GDP growth. So we just kind of rolled along at about 3% nominal growth for a decade. And so we never saw that. Now, during that same period, remember, interest rates were, were zero by the Fed. And as and, and again, there's no historical correlation between bigger deficits leading to higher rate interest rates or Fed cuts leading to higher interest rates, because again, that's all a function of economic activity. So again, when we come back and we look at all these things about what went on, even all this monetary spending that we did all during 2008, 2009, just this massive spending growth never actually translated into economic activity. Only during that COVID spike did we get inflation and a pop in economic activity. And now that's rolling off again. So you know, we spent $43 trillion and all this money from the government, the Fed, QE, all this to get $5.7 trillion of economic growth. There's not a translation between QE, economic growth, inflation, and interest rates. Okay. Fascinating. All right. I want to dig more into that, but like I said, I got to put a pin in it. Next week. Um, all right. So RIA saying we're not that worried about inflation resurging later this year. No, 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 no. Whoa, 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 whoa. Back that up. Whoop. Okay. Uh, no. We think inflation will tick back up, um, but it's not going to 9%. So we just have to be clear about, you know, are you talking about a resurgence of inflation back to double digit levels or going from three to 4%? Three to 4%, very likely that's going to happen, you know, uh, depending okay. on what happens economically. In five, five, six? Probably not. Probably not. Probably not. Okay. All right. Um, okay. Uh God, I want to dig into that, but we got to move on. All right. Next um, week. All next week, we'll do the fallacy <laughs> QE next week. Okay. Um, again, lightning round, because I want to get to a couple quick things uh, as we wrap up. Um, bond yields continuing to creep back up here. Anything to comment on about this or just sort no. of? Okay. Um, kind of what we said before, which is that we expected bond yields to creep up to about four, four and a quarter percent. Um, doing exactly, look, uh, the stock market in November, December got extremely overbought. Bonds got extremely overbought short term. Everybody was piling into bonds all of a sudden. It was like, you know, the, all of last year, nobody wanted to own a bond. And then at the end of the year, everybody wanted to buy one. So everybody jumped into bonds. Bonds got very overbought. And just like everything else, we're just going through that corrective phase. Um, you know, four, four and a quarter percent, still kind of our target. Um, you know, and, and again, once we kind of get to that level, we're, we're starting to work off that big overbought condition and probably somewhere in the next month or so, we'll have a good entry point to add to bond exposure for this year. Okay, great. So as you begin to see that entry point emerge, looking we'll forward to you letting us know on these weekly programs. Yeah. yeah. I'll, um, I'll let you know it's after I buy my position. Okay. <laughs> um, so uh, we got a ridiculously low jobless claims report yeah. that just came out. It was the second lowest level uh, reading that we've had since May 1969, right? Um, so what was it? Something like 187,000 uh, jobless claims uh, were filled. Is is this is this something we should really take note of? Or is this just a factor of weather that, um, you know, 
cold weather, people couldn't go out there and make their claims and, uh, you know, don't freak out about, or I shouldn't say well, freak out, but don't place a lot of weight on this until we see more data. No, no, I, I would, you know, look, yes, that's, that's partly true. Um, you know, the, the kind of the polar vortex, keep people inside. So that's going to, we'll probably see a pop in claims next week, but there was a really interesting video out, um, earlier this week and it had like a million views on it. And so I had to go, I went to watch this more and, and the video is this young kid and he's like, and, and you and I have talked about the job opening labor turnover survey. And mm -hmm. there's something wrong with all that data that says, oh, there's all these job openings. And yet we have employment being a very different story. And so he talks about how he sent out 1400 resumes through LinkedIn and Indeed and all these different, you know, recruiting services. He's just, you know, sending out tons of, of resumes. 1400? 1400. <laughs> and, and he said um, he, he got a job. Um, and the only reason he got a job previously was because the hiring manager, they went to school together. So that's how he got into the door. And he's, and of course, you know, people are telling him, he's like, oh, we have to do cold emails. He's like, look, I've done cold emails, hot emails, medium rare emails. I've called, I've done, I've done everything, right? Not able to get a job. And so I go, well, probably something wrong with you, right? So I said, well, let, let's go look at some of the comments. And again, this thing has like a million views. So there's thousands upon thousands of comments on this video. The vast majority was like, yeah, same problem. Sending out resumes, not getting a bite. And so, and, and look, this is all anecdotal. I'm not saying this is a scientific survey by any stretch of the imagination, but this, is, this has been my suspicion for a while about jobless claims as well as job openings. Companies aren't laying off people, right? We're not seeing big terminations because companies only hired back the employees they fired during the pandemic. In fact, there's a, a really great, analysis out uh, that was out this morning you know if you, you know uh, president Biden's claiming oh i created 14 million jobs since i've been in office through the first 31 months whatever actually if you strip out all the jobs that were lost that came back he's created like 400,000 like 300,000 manufacturing jobs like a total of 2 million jobs uh, have been created during his tenure as president and so, so what that tells you is, is that companies have hired back what they want, but they're not hiring a lot of excess. So they're, they're so as things slow down, there's not this big need to lay off a ton of people because they never overhired coming out of that recessionary downturn we had in 2020. Yep. So if, if I'm not firing a lot of people, there's not a lot of jobless claims. But that also means that, and we talked about this before with job openings, Restaurants always have job openings, right? I've always got an opening at my restaurant for four waitresses or wait staff and a hostess, right? Because they quit all the damn time to go somewhere right. else. So I've all, those jobs are just perpetually out there. Doesn't mean I'm hiring for them. And so when I get resumes in, I just put them on file and we sit on them. Um, we always have job openings at our at our company, right? If you're a financial advisor, you've got a book of business, and you know you've got your CFP, we'd love to talk to you. Right. We, we are always looking for new advisors to add to our platform and, and to our company because we're always in need of that because of, of servicing our customers. But just because we're always hiring doesn't mean we're hiring today, this minute. Right. We have to have you know, need and financing and all this. So, again, a lot of companies have openings that doesn't necessarily mean they're hiring. And that's that that's that dispersion that we're seeing between the data and initial claims as well as job openings and what's happening on the on kind of on the ground floor of the economy. Got it. And, and I can say anecdotally, I know a few kind of bright, shiny young kids, you know, younger adults who are out there trying to get their first job and just 
not having success. I mean, th- th- right. these are these are high pedigree uh, candidates, and you know they're doing everything. You know, they're 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 not just sending emails; they're networking, they're showing up with custom, you know, handwritten. I really want to work here stuff, and um, again, super anecdotal, but it it supports what you're saying. All right. It's, 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 oh, go ahead. No, I was going to move on. So if you have anything oh, else to go, say. No, go, go, go ahead. It's not All right. So uh, I, I need literally your your like real uh, lightning round answers on these two next things. Um, the Chinese stock market is really falling pretty hard. Um, yeah. Rumors that they're calling in the, the plunge protection team there. Now, uh, main question is just, um, and by the way, not for nothing too, um, China's population just declined for the second year in a row. Right, we're we're used to it being this huge growth juggernaut, um, but its demographics are starting to catch up with it as well. Right. Any expected blowback in the markets from this, from from China's you know capital markets struggling? You would have kind of thought that would have happened by now if it was going to happen, right? You would have seen a big roll off in tech or the markets here. And I think what's happening again, I'm not saying that that won't eventually happen, um, you know, because there is a correlation between. Chinese market liquidity and, and liquidity to the global markets as well. So there is a, there is something we're paying attention to. Um, if China starts stepping in and starts bailing out their markets, that should benefit us. I'm surprised that we haven't seen a bigger drawdown in tech here. The reason I think that's the case is because money's hiding in U.S. tech stocks. U.S. tech stocks are easy in, they're highly liquid, um, they're very safe, and they're perceived to be a, a, a form of safe haven for capital. So if I can't, if, if I'm supposed to have money in Chinese tech um, and I don't want to be there, I'm putting it in U.S. tech, theoretically, uh, as a place to hide. So I think we're seeing a lot of that flow push into U.S. tech, uh, people hiding there because hmm. of what's happening in China. <laughs> Just it's theory. I don't have any proof of that. All right. All right. Yeah. Kind of like what we've seen out here on the U.S. West Coast, where our real estate markets, you know, have been one of the things that's been pushing them to these crazy levels has been capital flight from China. And these guys are price insensitive because they're like, look, even if I don't care if I'm buying into a housing bubble, if it corrects by 50 percent, at least I got 50 percent of my money out. Right. Exactly. So you're saying there's almost a similar thing going on with U.S. tech. OK, um, I just want to note this because we've we've touched upon it in the past. You, you haven't seemed particularly nervous about it, but um, it, it is continuing to heat up versus cool off. And so I just want to note where it is, but but looking to the Mideast, um, the situation there just, again, continues to, to get hotter. Um, we've now have uh, US and the UK uh, striking 60 plus targets, uh, Houthi targets in Yemen. You know, they, they've been lobbing these, these drones at the shipping fleets, right? So that's going on. Iran and Pakistan just ex- exchanged missile fire. Uh, and Jordan just bombed Syria. So, you know, it, it's it's just getting more and more unstable. Who knows where it's going to go? Hopefully things quiet down. Um, just want to give you a chance to just say, is this is this catching your attention at all? You're still not that worried? I'm not worried. I'm not. Uh, look, uh, when it comes down to this, am I, am I personally worried um, about the environment that we live in, the geopolitical risk that potentially could affect our lives here? Yeah, of course. Who, who wouldn't be? Um, one of the greatest tweets I saw all week long was this uh, in a, this exchange between the Houthis and the U.S. Navy. 
um, there was a tweet out and it says, you don't mess with Taco Tuesday. Of course, the, the U.S. Navy just decimated a bunch of Hootie ships. So uh, Hootie targets and, and it was the taco was signed. The USS Enterprise and the tweet came from the captain of the Enterprise. So, <laughs> so, so you know, it's just basically the Navy's not worried about this at all. Um, but anyway, the, you know, I, I'm definitely worried about the escalation of that, but the markets don't care. Um, you know, it's interesting. We're not seeing a big, you know, I, we added some energy exposure earlier this year as this escalation started on expectations. We would see potentially a, a pickup in energy prices because of this. It's not really happening. Uh, energy stocks are hanging in there, but they're not they're not participating. Um, we expected a lot more. We also own companies like uh, Raytheon Technologies, uh, which you know, build missiles and all kinds of weaponry for these type of events. And those stocks are doing okay, but certainly not, you know, what you would expect that there was real concern about this escalating into a much bigger thing. Maybe that still comes, but kind of from a stock market perspective, which is what you're asking me, the market isn't overly concerned about that because the areas that should be benefiting the most if there is this rising risk of, of, of war should be doing a whole lot better than they are. So the market is not concerned about this escalating at the moment. Okay. Um, uh, I'm debating whether to mention this. I guess I'm going to try to squeak it in. If we can't, we'll just push it to next week. Um, but I wanted to let folks know about the Corporate Transparency Act. Has that been on your radar at all, Lance? Yes. <laughs> it's just like come out of nowhere for, for most people. This is stupid. But go yeah, ahead. So, so basically, um, if you're a business... Um, practically any business, um, you have to file this new Corporate Transparency Act. And there are you know, pretty serious repercussions if you don't uh, file for it. Um, it brand new. Uh, it just started allowing filings uh, at the beginning of this year. You've got the entire year to file this thing. But if you are one of the 30 million business owners who's going to have to file, um, this should be on your radar uh, if it's not. Um, and this basically, you know, pre presumptively, it's it's you identify, okay, I'm a business. This is who I am. I, I am here in America, and it's basically trying to weed out like money launderers and stuff like that. No, it's, um, not. it's not trying to. No, it's that's that's the that's the reason they gave you. Oh, that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. No, pre this, presumptively, this, that's why they're saying it's supposed yeah, to do it. That's yeah. not. That's not why they're doing it. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. I mean, it's it's basically just creating a, a another big data registry no. to to be looked at. No, they're going for this. Okay, so first of all, you just threw out a stat: thirty million business owners. How many of those business owners have employees? Out of thirty of million. Don't. Sorry, I said a lot of them don't. Yeah, six million of thirty have actual employees. So twenty-four million have no employees whatsoever. What are those for? Why do I have 24 million businesses that have no employees? What are they doing? I have sole proprietorships or? No, no, they are trust. They are LLCs for housing, real estate assets. They are uh, uh, grantor trust. They are special needs trust. They are estate trust. They are for all kinds of asset protection and estate planning issues. That's what they're for. Like for myself, I have a whole LLC has no employees. All it does is house assets. That's yep. what it does. Right. And so, for instance, I may have if I have like 10 rental properties, I've got 10 LLCs. Right. That I own 100 percent of that each own a real estate property. 
So under this act, if you own more than 25% of the business, you have to register. So if I own a trust with a bunch of assets in it and I'm the government, I want to know where all these assets are that are now that are theoretically hidden at the moment because they're behind these, these protection walls. This makes me disclose who owns all those assets. Yep. Yeah, well, that's sort of what I was saying about it. It's, it's creating it's, this big registry for, you know, basically greater this government. Is, this is, the government is wanting to know where your assets are and who owns them. And, 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 uh, and it's so, also unconstitutional. But other than that. Other than that, yeah. And we could rant about this. And, and if we want to rant, let's rant next time on it. But I just wanted to make folks aware of this because you, if you own an LLC like this that Lance is saying or, or sole proprietorship or whatever, right, you've got to report this. And there's pretty big penalties if you don't um the only thing i'll say is um uh two two things one like like you know any government program it can be abused i think we've already probably put the ideas in the minds of people of of why this is maybe a scary thing uh from a you know transparency and government being all up in your grill standpoint but already um there is uh reports that um uh, FinCEN is is flagging transactions according to kind of people's political persuasion that's looking for keywords and things like this. So yeah. it already seems to be getting sort of abused for political purposes already. Yeah. And, and then yeah. when I went to their website today, <laughs> um, it said that uh, FinCEN has been notified of recent fraudulent attempts to solicit information from uh, from folks basically you know, scammers pretending to be FinCEN and saying, we need this information, give us all your information, right? And then taking that information yeah. and, and basically trying Amazing. to get your Amazing that would happen. Amazing yeah. that would happen, right? Yeah. Um, if you shop at Cabela's or you shop at Bass Pro Shop or you search keywords of MAGA or Trump, yeah, you're on the radar. Yeah. So anyways, where, where I'm going with this is uh, it's not good. Again, maybe Lance, maybe we can dedicate some time in a future video here to really dig into this for folks and, and probably get a good rant on. Um, but to the extent that you think you may be one of the people that has to comply with this, go to fincen.gov. Uh, that's the website. You can find more details there. And if you do have to register, you have to register by the end of 2024. Or again, like I said, those pretty stiff penalties uh, start to kick in. Um, all right. Uh, in wrapping, beginning to wrap things up here, um, uh First, uh, some really good news for folks. Um, got a lot of real kind support from people as I was studying for that securities exam. Took it yesterday, passed it. So um, I can, you know, breathe a sigh of relief, get that off my brain. It's going to unlock uh, some of the final uh, big things for uh, what we want to be able to offer to folks through Thoughtful Money. Um, and you'll see and hear more about that uh, pretty soon as uh, I, I get the final approval from the securities authorities uh, and be able to get greenlighted to do some of the things I want to do. But I want to thank everybody for, again for your kind wishes and also super excited for the mental bandwidth that's getting freed up by not having to study for that test anymore. Um, all right, Lance, I want to get to uh, our, our little rant slash human interest topic this week. And um, I think this one's going to be right in your wheelhouse. Um, so one of the reasons why, you know, I, I, I pushed forward with studying for the securities exam when it came at a completely uh, inconvenient time, um, both in terms of, you know, all the transition of, of moving away from my previous company to, to founding Thoughtful Money to, you know, my parent, you know, my father passing away last month um, and uh, just a lot on my plate, but I had to keep 
uh, persevering to, to, to pass this thing. And what drove me to do that was the bigger picture, right? Super inconvenient, super um, painful in a lot of ways uh, to, to have to just keep grinding away at that. Um, but the important thing was, is I knew what I was doing it for, right? And, and this comes down to the topic of today's rant, which is the importance of knowing your why, right? If you, if you know why you are, what you're shooting for and why you're going for it, that is sort of like the key element of the mental fortitude that's going to actually see you through to get your, to realize your goal. Um, we talk a lot in the past about, you know, grit and dedication and commitment and learning how to persevere through adversity and all that type of stuff. But the number one thing that researchers say that make people successful in doing that is having a really clearly defined why. And, you know, maybe you've, you've read the, the books by guys like Simon Sinek, you know, know your why, and, and that's how you, you know, achieve personal goals and business goals and all that stuff. But the, the best visualization of this that I've seen is there was a, a TV series. It was just a one, one season series back in 2016, I think, called The Selection. Do you ever see, see that, Lance? I did so, not. So The Selection, it's, it's, it's a reality show. Um, and what it is, is it's a, um, it, it's like an accelerated um, special forces program. So it's, it's uh, designed by Green Berets, Navy SEALs, Army Rangers, and they basically put out a casting call and they said, hey, think you're tough. Think you've got what it takes to make it through special forces training. Um, come show up at you know our place here. Um, if we accept you, right? It's a very stringent screening program. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna end up with like forty of you, and we're gonna put you guys through this you know hyper condensed, hyper intense um, version of special forces, and we'll see how many of you come out the other side. And Lance, this was just the most brutal <laughs> abuse that these guys went through. And what was interesting is it was kind of divided into three waves. The first wave was to see, okay, so like, let's just weed out the people who aren't physically tough enough, right? So it was just like horrific, uh, you know, multiple times a day, uh, just feats of endurance and strength um, and just, just beating on these people, exhausting them physically and then waking them up an hour later and having them do it all over again. The second phase was weeding out the people who weren't mentally tough enough. So this was the sleep deprivation, the, you know, they, they capture some of these guys at some point and put them through sort of like, you know, mock torture, waterboarding, stuff like this. And they just try to beat these people down um, emotionally and mentally. Um, and then, you know, whoever's left after that, then they kind of, you know, grind them through the rest of the program. And, you know, lo and behold, I think it's something like, you know, three people out of the 40 or whatever make it through at the end. Um, but, you know, what what they show you through this, because they're 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 doing interviews along the way with the folks that are, you know, getting abused and trying to determine if they're going to stick in the program or not. The key thing is those that had the clearest why for why they were doing this and why they were there. Those were the guys that made it through to the end. They had a very strong sense of, of you know, what they were trying to get out of it, why it was an important part of their identity, why it was important to them. Um, and that was what kept them going when they were locked in a box, you know, in the dark, you know, with 
water dripping on them and they hadn't eaten in three days, right? So one of the things that stood out to be the most in that series was the fact that uh, if you looked at the candidates on day one um, and you said, uh, all right, I'm going to try to predict who's going to make it through here. Um, really easy to go look at the really big, beefy guys who just, you know, looked really tough, both physically and, and mentally. They just seemed like the most aggressive and focused. Um, and uh, and to really discount, you know, the smaller, more wiry guys, or in many cases, a lot of the women, you know, compared to these big, hulking guys. Um, and in almost every case, you'd have been wrong. <laughs> you know, uh, it, it, it just shows that kind of the, the size of the package doesn't really matter when it comes down to having the ability to just persevere through misery. Um, and what really does instead is, is, is it's, it, it's the why. Um, so uh, it's fascinating series, um, really great sort of deep dive into the amount of abuse that the human body can take. But again, really like, you know, what is it that gets us through extreme adversity? Um, so anyways, anyone who's interested, um, I'll put a link to the selection uh, down below in the description of this video here. Um, if you've got, you know, uh, time, you know, next week or whatever, you're, you're looking for something interesting to watch. It doesn't take too much time. I think it's like eight episodes. Um, really pretty fascinating. And so, uh, again, I, I know this is sort of a, a, a bit of a world that you're familiar with, Lance, um, but you know, we talk a lot about a lot of the behaviors that people should engage in. I want to make sure we really underline this point about the why. In fact, it's almost the thing you should start with, right? Just to say, if I want to be better, if I want to go through, you know, some sort of metamorphosis or transformation, I better be real clear at the beginning why I'm doing it. Because if I'm not, I'm going to get knocked off in this journey by, you know, the pain, the uncertainty, the unpleasantness or whatever of it. You're nodding as I'm saying all this. Yeah, well, no, I mean that's it's with anything, right? Uh, you know, I, you know, you know, you can you can take an alcoholic as an example, and you can force them into rehab, but it's not going to work. You know, they have to reach the point that they want to fix the problem. They've got to say, "I've got to do this for me to do this." That's the why, right? Why am I? Why am I? Why am I going to put myself through this agonizing pain? Whether it's you know trying to become a Navy SEAL or just trying to lose weight, right? <laughs> you know. You know, those all for, you know, those all require a dedication to reaching that goal. And if you're not fully committed to it, and if you don't understand why you're doing it, you're, you know, the first time it gets tough, you're going to say, okay, well, I'm done. I'm going to. Right. Because we're humans. We have those voices in our head that say, this sucks. Right. You know, let's quit. You know, go, <laughs> you're hungry. Go get the pizza or, you know, running, running is no fun. Just stop. Right. <laughs> I mean, you're. You're going to have all this pressure to to capitulate, right? Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, but that's, but again, this, this goes with everything in life, whether it's your job, your business. Again, you know, we, we've talked about starting a business and, you know, people complain about capitalism, how capitalism is broken, which is absolutely not true. You can go out and start a business today and be one of those 30 million business owners you have to report your information on. Um, but anybody can go start a business, but you better damn well know why you're doing it because, it's not easy. It takes a tremendous amount of work. You've got to risk. You, you've got to sacrifice. You're you're going to work late hours. You're going to have to do stuff all the time that you just don't want to do. And you know that's just part of running and operating a business. So you better be well understanding. You know what my goal, what my objective is, before you even start. Because otherwise, the first time you will fail, and you will fail. There's no doubt that you're going to fail along the way. 
things are not going to work. You're going to hit hurdles. Things are, are not going to work out the way you thought. Um, and you're going to quit. And you're going to, I'll just go back. I'll go back to working nine to five. And, you know, that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. But the difference between those who succeed and those who don't are those that are willing to have fortitude and go through that pain and come out the other side of it. Yeah, that, it's that whole like, you know, it's not how many times you get knocked down, it's how many times you get back up. And what forces you to get back up, what enables you to get back up, is that why, right? Yeah. It's that I haven't achieved this yet. I know what I need to do. I know why I'm doing it. I can't lay down here. If it's going to happen, I got to get back up and try to make this thing happen. Um, so, you know, my my I think my counsel here to people would be, look, um, I think in general, people don't do nearly as much goal setting as they should. Uh, and when you set a goal, you should try to make it a smart goal, right? And what is smart, specific, measurable, actionable, realistic, and time-bound? I think that's right. what it stands for. Um, if you're going to make a goal, make it make it a smart goal. But even then, you know, smart goals, they need a why, right? So, uh, you know, I, I guess I just recommend anybody listening to to this interview right now is, is if you, you know, maybe take a moment today five minutes over coffee and just try to identify one to three important goals in your life, right? They don't have to be business goals, but important goals in your life that you want to make progress on in 2024. Um, yeah. If you can write smart goals for them, absolutely great. That's the extra credit. But I think the key, the key assignment here is just to really just clarify your why, you know, can you write a why for each one of those ones? That's just a short sentence. And if you can, you know, Try to share it with somebody and just like really crystallize it in your mind. Yeah. And again, you know, to your point, I mean, it's, you know, we all set New Year's resolutions and they always fail, you know, quickly. <laughs> you know, it's like go to the gym. You know, no, I hate going to the gym in the first two weeks of the year because it's jam packed with people. By the end of the month, it's completely empty again. So, you know, that's just the way New Year's resolutions work. But, you know, and that's because they don't have a obtainable goal. It's unrealistic. I'm going to lose 50 pounds this year. That's not realistic. I'm going to lose two pounds this month. That's realistic, right? That's where you want to work on your goals is make them short-term, make them obtainable so that you have, you have a big goal, right? My goal is to lose 50 overall, but I'm going to lose two pounds this month or this week or whatever it is, but make them small goals so that you constantly have success that you can build on. And, and to move forward, you know, one of the, one of the greatest things that I, I make my children watch is this uh, guy who's a, he's a, a Navy commander for the SEALs. And he's like, the first thing you do every morning is make your bed. And the first thing you do when you're in SEAL training, you get up in the morning, 4 a.m., first thing you do is make your bed because you've already achieved something for the day. And if you can just do that, set small goals, achieve those every day, you're going to succeed over the long term. Yeah, we're, we're, we're back at the Atomic Habits, which we've talked about the past couple of times, which again, I continue to totally recommend that. But but just to underscore what you're saying there, which is New Year's resolution, going to go to the gym, right? That yep. fails for so many people because that's a how, right? Yep. It's not a why, right? It's not even a what, right? The why is like, I want to be healthier. Or I want to look better, right? Or I want to I want to feel better, or I don't want to die of some sickness, right? <laughs> um, and then and then the how becomes okay. I need to get my weight down to this level, right? Or I need to get to this level of of physical capability, right? And then the how becomes all right. Well, then that means I got to be in the gym at least three times a week doing these exercises, right? Or I need to lose those two pounds per week that you're talking about, right? So. Um, I think it's really important to really understand, you know, 
a how isn't a motivator, right? It's the why, right? And if you're if you're if you're relying on the how to motivate you, you're you're, you're going to fail. It's just not designed to, right? All right. Um, okay. So let's start wrapping up here. Um, a reminder for folks: um, the um, Thoughtful Money Conference is coming up uh, in just a little bit. Uh, well, actually, just a little bit under two months now. Uh, so a reminder: that's going to be Saturday. March 16th. If you can't make the live event, we'll have replay videos of the entire event that will go out to everybody within 24 hours. Um, all the details of the event are coming. I don't have them to share with you just yet. Um, I will have them by next week. Um, but I do want to rem remind folks too that um, we will be having uh, a lot of discounts that we offer price-wise um, in advance of the actual date itself. Uh, there'll be an early bird price. There'll be a last chance to save price before it jumps up to the full price. And that anyone who is a premium subscriber to my Substack over at adamtaggart.substack.com, you'll get 50%, uh, sorry, an additional $50 uh, off each one of those discount prices. So your, your very low price premium membership acts as a pretty juicy uh, discount card uh, to the conference and, and any other things that Thoughtful Money might do in the future that, that may cost money. Um, all right. And if, you're, uh, if, if, if your why in life uh, for getting out of bed in the morning is watching these weekly market recaps with Lance and I every weekend, please show your support for that by hitting the like button, then clicking on the red subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. Lance, as usual, I'll give you the last word. I, I don't know, but if you're a why on Saturday mornings to get up to watch this video, you need a different why. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, there's no, no there's no higher uh, higher <laughs> use of people's time than watching yeah. this. No, it was actually very interesting. Uh, there was a, a, a statistics survey out um, this week that showed the most popular podcasts, like the top 10 most popular, pod, not podcasts, but genres of podcasts. And nowhere on there was money or investing or finance, right? Self-improvement was at the bottom. True crime and, and stuff like that was way up the ladder. But, you know, you, you think about all the podcasts that are out there where you could improve your you know, TED Talks and everything else that you can be improving your education, improving your knowledge, you know, giving yourself up a leg, you know, kind of a leg up in life. And we're watching true crime stories about how to murder our wives. But, you know, <laughs> you know, we're not, you know, not even on the genre list in the top 10 is the, the one thing we depend on for our life, which is money. So, hey, thanks for watching. We appreciate it. And we'll try to make sure you make some money over the years. Well, I'm I'm going to search for it right now. Um, yeah, I know we we put all the world's uh, information um, for free in everybody's hands, and and what do we do? You know, we 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 watch cat videos and uh, you know true crime. Um, I, 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 I do want to leave with uh, with with this great comment that somebody submitted last weekend, um, just just to give us a little bit of hope in the story here. Um, is uh, somebody said. Uh, these weekly market recap videos are the new adult version of the Saturday morning cartoons from when we <laughs> and I know you and I both got a big laugh out of that. And we were yeah. debating which one of us was Yogi and which one of us was Boo Boo. I'll let yep. the audience decide that. But anyways, folks, thanks so much for spending your uh, your weekend with us today watching this. And for those that watch regularly, thank you for doing uh, this with us week in, week out. Lance, always great with you, buddy. Folks, if you want to watch that uh, interview with, with uh, Jim Bianco, I'll put up a link to it right here. Lance, I'll see you in a week. Everybody else, thanks so much for watching.